Several years ago on a tour to Israel, we were able to visit the ancient site of Shiloh. God was worshipped at Shiloh at the tabernacle for 369 years. It's an important site. This is where Eli the priest raised a young boy named Samuel, remember. Today, Shiloh is in the West Bank under Palestinian control. Israelis consider it hostile territory. As a matter of fact, our tour company agreed to go to Shiloh, but only in an armored bus, just in case we were greeted by flying rocks. You know, the Palestinian welcome. Shiloh is just a few miles south of Sychar, or Shechem. Today, this is the site of a major Palestinian-controlled city called Nablus. The Bible refers to this region as Samaria. And Samaria was as difficult a destination in Jesus' day as it is today. The terrain from Jerusalem to Shiloh or to uh, Shechem is hilly, it's mountainous, it's some places treacherous. And there were hostilities then, just as there are now, not with Palestinians, but with the rival Samaritans. I'm surprised Jesus and his disciples didn't take an armored bus. The preferred path from Galilee to Jerusalem was further east, down the Jordan Valley, not through the rocky region in the center of the country, the region of Samaria. A pilgrim traveled through Samaria only if there was a pressing need to do so. Which brings us to John chapter 4. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. Now notice the imperative here. John tells us he needed to go through Samaria. Apparently, Jesus obeyed an inner urge, a mental must. For some reason, he knew his Father in heaven wanted him and his crew to pass through Samaria. Verse 5, so he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, or Shechem, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. You know, it's interesting that even in Jesus' day, this, there was history associated with this site. Apparently, it was already a stop on Holy Land tours. Jacob's well was there. Now, Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour, or on, or on our clock, high noon. Now, Samaria sat in the mountains. Jesus had been hoofing up the steep terrain all morning long. You can bet his dogs were tired. He took off his sandals to rest his feet there by the well, and he sent his disciples into the nearby village for coffee and bagels. That's the scene. Verse 7, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Today, there's friction in the area between Jewish settlers and the local Palestinians, but, in a, but there was a similar animosity that existed in Jesus' day. It, though, was between the Jews and Samaritans. When Assyria in 722 B.C. conquered Samaria seven, over seven centuries earlier, the Assyrians bred foreigners with the surviving Israelis. The Jews in Jerusalem viewed these Samaritans as mongrels, as half-breeds, 
a completely different sect in their mind. In fact, the Samaritans developed their own rival religion. They instituted their own priesthood. They even had their own temple, which stood on the nearby Mount Gerizim. There was such hatred between Jews and Samaritans, the Jews prayed that no Samaritan would rise in the resurrection. In chapter 8, verse 48, we'll get to in a few weeks, the Jews try to insult Jesus by saying, you are a Samaritan and have a demon. That was an insult. In the first century, Jews and Samaritans got along about as well as Jews and Palestinians in the 21st century. Yet Jesus says to this woman, he addresses this woman, give me a drink. Now remember it was noon, midday in Samaria, temps hit 90 plus degrees. This woman had come for water in the cool, most of the women at the time came for water in the cool of the day, in the early morning hours. As a matter of fact, you would never see anyone come at noon. Noon was the hottest part of the day. But apparently that was this woman's strategy. As we're going to learn, this woman had lived an immoral life. She had been frowned on by her relatives. She had been snubbed by her neighbors. She had very few friends. She lived in shame and isolation. And so she comes to the well at a time when nobody else will be there. It's shocking, really, that Jesus would speak to this woman. A Jewish rabbi and a Samaritan woman were like on the opposite ends of the first century social ladder. And not only were Jews biased against Samaritans, they were also prejudiced against women. One rabbi taught, it is better the words of the law be burned than to be delivered to a woman. Christianity did it a lot for you ladies. This is why this lady does a double take when Jesus asks her. He initiates it. Give me a drink. John notes the disciples' whereabouts at the time. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She thought it was strange too. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Living water. That's the swirling. That's the flowing that's the water that's clean and clear. It's potable water. It's drinkable water in contrast to a stale pond, stagnant water. And living water is the term that Jesus coins to describe the life of the Spirit. When you choose Jesus, you get born from above. Refreshment is the result. Living water is the spiritual equivalent of a cool drink on a hot day. A thirst gets slaked. An ah floods over one's soul. Living water quenches that deep down thirst that all humans possess. It produces spiritual deep satisfaction. And this is the water that Jesus offers this woman. Verse 11. The woman said to him, Sir... You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Now today, Jacob's well is covered by a church. The opening of the well is actually in the basement of the church. But in 1935, the well was dredged. 
And the excavators dug 138 feet before hitting bottom. Apparently this woman was right. It was deep. Where are you going to get this water? She asked, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? She could tell that Jesus lacked a dipper. She, he lacked a bucket to drop down into the well. Where are you going to get this water? As in chapter 3 with Nicodemus, Jesus is talking figuratively, spiritually, whereas this woman is thinking literally. This was the problem with Nicodemus. It's a problem we often have. Verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. In other words, whoever drinks of this water from Jacob's well will thirst again, in contrast to the living water, which you drink and never thirst again. Here's a verse that we should write over the top of everything that this world has to offer us. That new house you're longing to get, that luxury car, the latest gadget, the new iPhone, the fancy clothes, the pretty girl. Get it and you'll thirst again. It might produce a bloated, full feeling for a time, but nothing permanent gets resolved. In, the, in a short time, you'll be thirsting again. You finally get married. You'll thirst again. You get pregnant. Oh, you'll thirst again. You get that high-paying promotion. You'll thirst again. How often have we said, I'll be happy when? And then the wind comes and we're thirsting again. Realize physical stuff can never satisfy a spiritual need. Always remember that. The city of Marseille, France is home to a series of sculptures by artist Bruno Catalano. There are travelers who are missing a piece of themselves. All the sculptures are people carrying baggage, but there's a hole in the, in the, in the person. They're not all there. There's a hole in their life, literally. And Bruno's statues couldn't be a more fitting poster child for the whole human race. For we're all missing a piece. We're all missing something inside before we come to Jesus. Famous comedian Eddie Murphy once told People Magazine, I don't think there's anyone who feels like there isn't something missing in their life. I agree. It doesn't matter where we go. It doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter how much we get. It doesn't fill the hole inside, at least not for long. Jesus predicted it. You will thirst again. But Jesus goes on to say, But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The spirit of the Christian is an artesian well bubbling up from within, bubbling up a transcendent joy, a tra joy that transcends circumstances, bubbling up an inner harmony, bubbling up a fervent love. Living water wells up within the heart of every true believer. Jesus alone can quench our deep down thirst. You and I were made for God. The hole inside of us is Jesus-shaped. Believe me, 
Only he can fill our inner emptiness. Here's another name for living water. Jesus here calls it everlasting life. Notice it's not just long life. It's full and deep and abundant life. It speaks of quality, not just quantity. And everlasting life is available to us, not just when we get to heaven. It's available to us tonight when we put our faith in Jesus and trust the Holy Spirit to well up that living water in our hearts. In verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Now here's the breakthrough. She's beginning to understand what Jesus is offering to her. In the words of the old Sprite commercial, she's obeying her thirst. Give me this water, she says. But there's a prerequisite that she has to meet. There's a prerequisite that we all have to meet. It's called repentance. Jesus explains what it means in her context. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus knew she had no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. Notice Jesus didn't consider her current live-in to be her husband. Just because a man and a woman live together doesn't mean they're married in God's eyes. Jesus says to her, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. God recognizes and honors the bonds of marriage, not the convenience of shacking up. Now, Jesus wants to quench this woman's thirst, but first, he needs to deal with her sin. Understand this, there is no conversion without conviction. This girl had been, had, blah, blah, blah. This girl had been in more laps than a napkin. She had lax morals. She had low standards. You know, it's interesting. Jesus addresses self-righteousness in chapter 3 with Rabbi Nicodemus. Now in chapter 4, he deals with unrighteousness, but realize his remedy is the same. Both types of people need a new birth. They need a drink of living water. That's the answer. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. He just revealed her past and uncovered her five husbands, and, and she's starting to dawn on her that there's more to Jesus than meets the eye. You must be a prophet. Verse 19, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And this is often people's reaction. Jesus puts his finger on the sin in this woman's life, and guess what she does? She starts to squirm. She starts looking for a way out. She changes topics. As a matter of fact, the woman even gets spiritual. She's now concerned about religious things. And she brings up a current controversy. Jews worshipped in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Samaritans worshipped in, in Samaria on Mount Gerizim. Who's right? Understand, when people want to avoid the truth, they often argue theology. That's what this woman does. You know, Jesus has put his finger on the sin in her life. Now she wants to get religious and argue theology. He addresses her question, though. 
Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain, that is Gerizim in Samaria, nor on the temple mount, the mountain in Jerusalem, in neither place will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, for we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Now Jesus settles this controversy. Salvation is of the Jews. The Jews, not the Samaritans, were the custodians of the Scriptures and the caretakers of the sacrificial system. In the Old Testament, the correct mountain to worship on, worship on was Mount Moriah there in Jerusalem. In essence, Jesus is telling this woman, there has been a right way and a wrong way to worship. And up to this point, it's the Jews who've been doing it right. But it's all about to become a mute point. For change is coming, verse 23 he says. For the hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. For God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. With the coming of the Messiah, it's all going to change. Changes are going to come. Jesus was now God's temple on the earth. And He's made the temples on both mountains irrelevant. Today, God no longer dwells in houses made of stone and wood but in believing hearts. That's the temple today, in your heart and in my heart. You know, on our trips to Jerusalem, we always visit the Wailing Wall, which is the last remnant of the Jewish temple. And I have seen the devout Jews stand there and kiss the stones. It is their sacred site. And yet it never fails. Whenever I'm standing there at the wall, I always hear the Holy Spirit speak to my heart this verse. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. In other words, it's nothing to those stones. The logistics are of no matter, no longer. True worship now is a matter of the heart. For Jesus said, God is spirit. God lacks physical restraints. He has no properties that confine him to a single location. God is everywhere and at all times. Jesus is telling this Samaritan woman to stop limiting God to a mountaintop or to a temple or, hey, for us, to a church building for that matter. He is no longer found in brick and mortar. He is now found in spirit and in truth. The true God is understood biblically and experienced spiritually. No matter your location or your surroundings, all you need to connect with God is an open Bible, the truth. And an open heart, a receptiveness to the Holy Spirit, real worship occurs by the Spirit and through the Word. In verse 25, the lady responds to Jesus. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus clearly claims to be the Messiah of Israel. Clearly. And at this point, his disciples come. They make it back. And they bring with them probably the bagels. They certainly bring their bigotry. And they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? <laughs> That's what they thought. 
but they sure didn't say it. For by now, the disciples were used to Jesus' love for people, even unlovely people, even unexpected people. His willingness to reach out was no surprise. Verse 28, the woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men, come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. This is so fascinating. Remember, exposure to the townspeople was the very thing that this woman was trying to avoid by coming to the well at noon. But now she seeks out the townspeople. Apparently, shame no longer torments this woman. She has gone from outcast to now broadcast. Jesus knew her sin, but didn't condemn her. She's obviously now trusting in his mercies. It seems a a single slurp of living water gave this woman a new, unexpected boldness. Once you have God's forgiveness, you, you eventually become oblivious to your past. She's now caught up in the love of Jesus. All that matters is now sharing him. Verse 31, in the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. For he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? (laughs) Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Again, Jesus is talking figuratively, spiritually, yet his disciples are intent on interpreting him literally. Jesus fed on the will of God. Normally, when I think of soul food, I envision turnip greens, black-eyed peas, collards, chicken gizzards, pig's feet. Isn't that just scrumptious? But real soul food, real soul food is to hear God's word and to do it. Spiritual nourishment comes with sinking up to God's will. Verse 35. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. Apparently this incident occurred four months before the actual harvest. But Jesus is concerned about a harvest of souls of which this thirsty Samaritan woman was a part See, he cared not just for Jews, but for Samaritans. Even for a burned out woman who had loved and lost five times. And guys, this harvest continues with folks just like this woman who know they've sinned and yet want to start over. In verse 36, Jesus comments on this soul harvest and some principles that govern our participation in it. And he who reaps receives wages. And gathers fruit for eternal life. That both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. You know, sometimes we sow seeds of truth into people's lives. We plant thoughts in fertile minds. This is good. Other times we're there to reap the decisions that they make. When they commit themselves to Jesus. But however we participate, we can rejoice that God is using us either to plant or either to reap. 
Jesus says to his disciples, I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. Of course, he's speaking of John the Baptist here. John had already sowed the seed. He had preached repent. The kingdom of God is near. Perhaps the Samaritan woman had previously been influenced by John. We're not sure. The point, though, is that some sow, others reap. Verse 39, And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, He told me all that I ever did. A survey revealed that 85% of Christians are converted by the influence of a close friend or family member. 85%. The Samaritans could tell that this was a changed woman, and they believed her testimony about Jesus. Realize, at this point in this woman's life, this Samaritan, she knew very little about the gospel. She knew even less theology. But the people were attracted to her because of her testimony and her enthusiasm. And this is what will attract people to the message that you preach, to the gospel that you preach. That you own it. That it's happened to you. It's your testimony. You you shared the gospel in that way, and people can't resist. It's been said one witness with enthusiasm is better than 99 persons with knowledge. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his own word. Jesus loved the Samaritans, not just the Jews, but the Samaritans. Enough to hang out with them and straighten out their confused theology. He stayed there for two days, and many came to believe in him. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him. And we know that this is indeed the Christ or the Messiah, the Savior of the world. They didn't just take the woman's word for it. The Samaritans believed in Jesus themselves. Now after the two days, he departed from there and went to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Now when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him. Having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem... At the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. Capernaum was about 20 miles away. Now, when the nobleman heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son. For he was at the point of death. It's interesting. It never dawned on this man, this nobleman, that all Jesus had to do was just speak the word in Cana and his servant in Capernaum would be healed. Time and distance and space was inconsequential to the eternal son of God. But here he wants him to come down. He thinks he has to be present in order to work this miracle. Verse 48. Then Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. Now here Jesus is getting frustrated. By this point, he sees the Jews and their infatuation with miracles. They're always clamoring for something supernatural, something spectacular, some miraculous sign. In fact, they lusted after the spectacular. 
These were the people that liked fireworks. They were more interested in a circus than in a Christ. But this nobleman was only interested in his son, for he says to Jesus, Sir, come down before my child dies. Hurry, Jesus, please. Capernaum is a long walk. And I got a sick son there who's on the verge of death. And we need you. Jesus said to him, go your way. Your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Now here the plot thickens. Then he inquired of them the hour when he had gotten better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. Verse 53. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed in his whole household. This again is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. It's at the same time. The healing was obviously the result of the word of Jesus. Now remember, this is the second sign he says that's happened. The first sign, the first miracle was what? Turning the water into wine. That was a show of Jesus' power over time. He did in an instant what nature does over many years. You know, water turns to wine, or, or uh, the wine turns to, to uh, the water turns to wine, the grape juice turns to wine over a period of years. So what happened, what nature does in years, Jesus did, boom, in one second. It was a miracle. It was power over time. Now he heals a boy from a distance. He reveals his power over space. He is powerful over time. He's powerful over space. You know what that makes Jesus? He is the Lord of time and space. Chapter 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And John doesn't tell us which feast. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. Bethesda means house of grace. The sheep gate was just inside the northeast wall of the city of Jerusalem. The area consisted of two pools built over a hot springs. These pools were surrounded by a colonnade and were the site of a public bath. But a spiritual phenomenon had changed the use of these pools. In these five porches lay a great multitude of sick people, John tells us, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. So whenever a chronically ill person was released from the doctors, in other words, when all that could be done had been done, they would come to the pool of Bethesda. And what the Romans had built for relaxation had become an infirmary for the hopeless. There must have been some truth to their expectations. 
Healings had to have occurred. Or how else did the pool get this reputation? Why would the people be there hanging out at the time if no one was ever healed? John speaks of this as if it were more than just a legend. The healings were probably rare, but apparently at times an angel did come and present himself and stir up the waters, and healings did take place. Verse 5. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. He may have suffered from polio at an early age. He'd been crippled long enough to forget what it was like to chase his kids around the house or to take a walk with his wife or to push his plow across a field. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he already had been in that condition for a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Notice he doesn't even answer Jesus' question. Jesus says, Do you want to be made well? And he gives the excuses as to why he's not well and why he can't be well and why he will never be well. You know, apparently it's possible to get so used to your plague so used to your infirmity, so used to your hopeless situation that you become reluctant to even turn loose of it. Think of the alcoholic. He's destroying his life, but the stronghold of his habit is greater than his desire to change. After 38 years, it's easy just to lie down and give up, which is what this man had done. See, you can capitulate to your condition. You can give up on the dream of a different life, a better life, whatever that might be for you. This man by the pool blamed everyone else for beating him out of his miracle. But the real problem was that he had lost faith. He was waiting on the waters to be stirred while Jesus comes along and stirs up this man's faith. Jesus said to him, Rise. Take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. Here is a man bedridden for 38 years, yet Jesus tells him to get up and walk. Understand, all of God's miracles begin with impossible commands. This is always God's way. He asks us to believe the unbelievable. And as soon as we do, he releases his power in us to effect the change. But his power isn't released until we believe. When we put our faith in him, when we trust in him, in that micro millisecond, between the time this man's faith prompted the nerve impulses from his brain to get to his legs, God supplied him the strength that he previously lacked. The lame man who needed help just to crawl to the pool, now puts his faith in Jesus and suddenly this once crippled man is able to walk and jump and hop and skip all the way home. What a sight that must have been. Now it's also interesting to note that there were other needy people scattered around the pool that day, but Jesus didn't heal any of them. There were other people who were just as needy as this man, but Jesus chose not to heal them. He healed only one that day. 
And the question is, why? And the answer is, we don't know. But when we talk about healing, here is when we come face to face with God's sovereignty. God heals one person. And then he allows the other, more godly, more holy person to die. Why is that? I don't know. And you don't know. None of us know. The bottom line is, is that healing is God's prerogative, not ours. And we have no right to question or criticize what he does. This is where we have to trust him. Whether he heals or whether he helps us in our infirmity, we need to trust him in what he does and in his will for our lives. Notice the last line of verse 9. And that day was the Sabbath. (laughs) Jesus could have healed this lame man six of the days of the week. But he chose Shabbat, the Sabbath. In verse 8, when Jesus tells the lame man, take up your bed and walk, he uses an interesting Greek word for walk. It means to walk around, to take a stroll. Take up your bed and walk around this place and let everybody see you. That's what he's saying. Jesus wanted this man to show off his new wheels. Apparently, Jesus wanted all the eyes in the house to see this miracle and to take notice that it was done on the Sabbath day. And verse 10 tells us that Jesus got the attention that he desired. The Jews, therefore, said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. Can you believe that? According to the Talmud, the rabbinical commentary on the law, 39 tasks were prohibited on the Sabbath day. Here is religion in a nutshell. A miracle gets ignored while the guy who's healed gets criticized for carrying a bedroll on the wrong day. Home from his healing, no less. I'm telling you, legalism is sad. It's silly. It's petty. In a person's zeal to keep the rules, they can become irrational, even contradictory. A legalist will often keep a rule that's in conflict with that rule's original intention. That can happen too. One night, I was coming home from Bible study, and I stopped by Domino's down here in Snellville to get a pizza. It was about 11 o'clock, 11 p.m. I walked into the store. I tried to order, and the clerk at the counter told me that they stopped taking walk-ups at 10 p.m. He said, I would have to go home and place my order. That was strange, but I, but I said, okay. I figured it would be safer and easier for the delivery man if I called in the order and they just brought it to my car in the parking lot. I tried that. I mean, why drive 20 minutes? But again, they said no. These guys were a stickler for the rules. Only home deliveries after 10 p.m. So here's what happened that night. I ordered my pizza from the car in the parking lot, and a delivery man followed me to my house to hand me my pizza on my doorstep. No kidding. It was the craziest thing. 
But it's this kind of lunacy that the Sabbath regulations produced. The same kind of idioticiness. The Jews questioned this formerly lame man, and he reported what happened. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. It is interesting to me that Jesus returns to finish what he had started in this man's life. Jesus comes to him. Jesus found him in the temple and came to him. See, he didn't heal his lame legs so those legs could return to sin. The man's healing was only the first step in his cleansing. Jesus returned and found him and told him, sin no more. Verse 15, the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Sought to kill him, no less. But Jesus answered them, my father has been working until now, and I have been working. In other words, since the father works on the Sabbath day, so does the son. You know, if a family business is open on Saturdays, all the family works. When God created the heavens and the earth, he did so in six days. And on the seventh day, he rested. But man's sin, our rebellion, shattered the Father's Sabbath rest. And ever since then, he has been working relentlessly to redeem and restore fallen people. In healing on the Sabbath, Jesus was simply following his Father's lead. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. And remember the Jewish mindset. We're learning this now, aren't we? Remember the Jewish mindset? The son of an animal is a animal. The son of a human is a human. So the son of God is God. For Jesus to refer to God as his father, he himself was claiming to be God. And from here to the end of the chapter, Jesus testifies to his deity. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. Jesus was no lone wolf. In all he did, he acted in conjunction and in harmony with his Father. He always did the Father's will. The Father and the Son acted in perfect harmony. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. The strongest proof for Jesus' deity was his mastery over death. The son holds the key to eternal life. You know, the Jewish rabbis taught that Yahweh held three great keys. God held three great, great keys. First, the key to open the heavens and to give rain. 
the key to open the womb and give conception, and the key to open the grave and raise the dead. Three times in Jesus' ministry, he raised the dead. And in doing so, he proved his sovereignty over life and death, ultimately even his own life and death. He says in verse 22, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. In Genesis 18, 25, Yahweh is called the judge of all the earth. But apparently the Father delegated this authority to His Son. And in assuming the authority to judge all men, Jesus was claiming, once again, equality with God. Verse 23 is a stronger statement still. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. The Father shares His honor and glory with His Son. That means to disrespect one is to disrespect the other. How often do you hear a person claim, Oh, I'm good with God. I love God. You know, I just don't care for Jesus. How often have you heard that? Oh, they love God, but they reject Jesus. According to this verse, that is an impossibility. Despite what that person says, you don't love the Father if you reject His Son. You don't. Verse 24, Most assuredly I say to you, He who hears my word and believes in Him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. You know, the world we live in is a walking graveyard full of moving, breathing corpses. People are alive physically, but they're dead spiritually. It's when a person takes seriously the words of Jesus and believe in Him. That's when they can connect with God. Through Jesus, we pass from spiritual death into life. Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself. And has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the son of man. Daniel 7 verse 13. Write it down and look at it later. It refers to the Messiah as the son of man. And here Jesus claims to be him. God created life. And the father gave Jesus the authority to judge humans. And distribute eternal life. Understand, this makes Jesus the only authorized dealer of eternal life. If you want to live forever, there's only one place you can go and get it, and that's to Jesus Christ. In verse 28, Jesus says, Only what God could say, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear His voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Realize, humans who have lived and died still exist as disembodied spirits. But one day, our flesh and bone bodies, whether buried or whether cremated, will be resurrected, and they will be reunited with our spirits. Even the dismembered bodies are bodies that were burned in the fire, are bodies that were blown to pieces by an explosion, bodies that have now been lost to our loved ones. God still has the power to gather up the molecules 
that once constituted their bodies and to do this miracle of resurrection. One day, everybody's body that has ever lived will rise at the command of Jesus and be assigned their eternal destination. People who believed will be resurrected to life in heaven and people who didn't will be resurrected to life in hell. Jesus says in verse 30, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Jesus humbled himself. Every thought, every act, every instinct was synchronized to God's will. In fact, he says here in verse 31, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. Now here, Jesus appeals to the Jewish court, the Jewish law. For in the court, a single testimony was inadmissible. It took two or three witnesses to validate a claim. Jesus is telling his audience here, don't just take his word for it. Jesus has overwhelming collaboration. He is going to call five witnesses, not just two or three. For in the rest of the chapter, Jesus places five witnesses on the stand who will all confirm his claim to be God. First is John the Baptist. John the Baptist, you promised to tell the truth, the whole truth. And nothing, yeah, I do. Here he comes. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. John the Baptist testified that Jesus was the Messiah. Here's another witness in the case of Jesus Christ. His miracles testified of his deity. Verse 36. But I have a greater witness than John's. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. You know, though modern scholars have had a field day casting doubt on the legitimacy of Jesus' miracles, it's interesting that no one alive at the time ever denied their authenticity. You remember his enemy said that he worked miracles by sorcery or by demonic power, but they never denied that the miracles actually happened. There were too many eyewitnesses who saw the miracles in real time, who saw them with their own eyes. Even the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, a man who was definitely not a Christian, wrote that Jesus was known, and I quote, as a doer of startling deeds. No one could deny his miracles. They testified that he was God. Verse 37 highlights a third witness. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. The Father in heaven testified of Jesus on two occasions. You remember at his baptism and second on the Mount of Transfiguration. In both cases, the Father spoke from heaven and declared, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus explains why the Jews didn't hear his voice. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent, him you do not believe. You know, it's interesting. We want hearing to be the requisite for believing. We like hearing. We like seeing. 
we, we want that to be the requisite for, for believing. But God sees it just the opposite. For God, believing is the requisite for hearing and for seeing. God's voice is heard. His hand is seen by the believing heart, not the skeptical heart. The fourth witness is the scriptures. Verse 39. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. The Old Testament is chock full of types and idioms that point to Jesus as Messiah. As a matter of fact, it contains over 300 direct prophecies fulfilled by Jesus Christ himself. The Jews thought they knew the scripture. We're told they searched the text. Jesus uses that word searched. The word search literally means to sniff out like a hound dog. Some of these scribes were such thorough sniffers that they counted out every word of the law. They examined down to the very letters, yet they missed God's clear teaching about Jesus. Jesus says to the Jews in verse 40, But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. And this has been the sad history of the Hebrew people down through the ages. The Jews have been duped by false prophet after false prophet after false prophet. From Bar Kokhba in the 2nd century AD all the way down to Menachem Schneerson in the 1990s. Bible commentator John Phillips writes, The Jews never had a false Christ until they rejected the real Christ. Then they had a whole series of pseudo-messiahs who deceived them by the thousand. That's been the history of the Jews. Jesus predicted it. In verse 44, Jesus asks, How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe in me. For he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Here's the fifth witness that Jesus brings to testify to his deity. And that was Moses, the champion of the Hebrews. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses wrote of the Messiah as a prophet like himself. The Jews knew that, that Moses spoke of the Messiah. Jesus says Moses was speaking of him. The Jews cherished Moses, yet Jesus says Moses will stand up in the judgment and condemn them for not recognizing the one of whom Moses wrote. If the Jews believed in Moses, they should have believed in Jesus. Again, the fivefold witness of Jesus. John, his miracles, the Father, the Scriptures, and Moses. Moses. 